I hope you've got that reading in front of you, either on the, uh, the screen or on the back of your sheet. Do have that there for you. And before we begin, just one thing to say about the, the Chosen. I hope you've had a chance to, to look at that wonderful uh, series of uh, TV films, mini-films. And tonight we're going to be uh, just reflecting on the third and fourth episode together. Uh, but if you don't know what we're talking about, have a look on YouTube, The Chosen. There's a whole separate website as well. Uh, and it's just a new life of Christ uh, done. It's quite sort of engaging and uh, uh, will help us if we've been a Christian for perhaps for quite a while just to refresh our faith as well. Let's uh, pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, would you please fill our hearts with this message of good news? And may it be one, Lord, that we share with others too, long to share and see others embrace this good news that we find in Jesus Christ. Amen. So the managing director of Nescafe Coffee went to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Archbishop Nescafe will give the Church of England £100 million to change, give us this day our daily bread, to give us this day our daily coffee. The Archbishop replied, I'm sorry, the Lord's Prayer cannot be changed. What if he gave you £250 million to change? No, I'm sorry, not even for £250 million would we do that. How about £5 million? It's my final offer, says the managing director. Well, the Archbishop went away and called the House of Bishops. I've got some good news and some bad news, he tells his fellow bishops. The good news is we have an extra £5 million to spend. The bad news is we've lost the Hovis account. <laughs> good news is our theme uh, this series, and uh, we've been just beginning to discover that in Luke's Gospel, lots of references to good news. And with all the bad news around at the moment uh, in our country, it's good that we have good news to share Two weeks ago, we saw how John the Baptist preached a message of good news, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And today we see Jesus declaring that he too has good news to tell. And Luke begins his account of Jesus' public ministry by carefully selecting this sermon that Jesus preached in Nazareth. I'm sort of bringing it forward uh, to put it at the beginning of this section. The town of Nazareth was where Jesus grew up as the son of uh, Joseph, the carpenter of the, the town. And he does this because, he wants, because in this sermon, Jesus summarizes what he's going to do in the years that lie ahead. It contains what is often described as Jesus' manifesto, his understanding of his calling and mission. And for those who seek to follow in his footsteps today, it's of vital importance that we too understand what this manifesto says so that we too can expend our energies on the same things. So they gathered together in the synagogue that Jesus knew so well, and the service, it seems, took the usual pattern, which would begin with the Shema, the prayer that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and goes on like that. It's a quote from a little section in the book of Deuteronomy. And then there would be some set prayers, a set reading from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 
And then a second free reading from one of the prophets, which in this instance was the prophet Isaiah. To be followed by a sermon and then a blessing. So we're going to look first at the passage that Jesus quoted from Isaiah, uh, the good news that Isaiah was proclaiming, and then we're going to see Jesus's good news, and finally why it is that so many then and now sadly reject the good news that Jesus came to bring. So let's look first as Isaiah's good news. Verse uh, 17 The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Isaiah's good news that Jesus quotes from there, first spoken 600 years before, is that a human being anointed by God himself will one day come and set his people free. And why do they need to be set free? Well, if we read the whole of Isaiah's prophecy, it's good to do at some point, we will find that it includes good news and bad news. In fact, much of the prophecy contains bad news due to their unfaithfulness and disobedience towards God and their unjust mistreatment of each other. The Israelites are going to forfeit the blessings of God and are going to be exiled from the promised land, just as the prophet Moses warned would happen hundreds of years before they even entered the promised land. Many are going to lose their freedom. They're going to be taken in captivity off to Babylon Those left behind are going to experience oppression at the hands of their enemies, which up to now God has protected them from. And they will all experience poverty rather than the plenty that they could have experienced if they'd stayed faithful to God and known his blessing in their lives. And part of this judgment, Isaiah says, will also involve falling under a spiritual blindness from which they will need to be set free. For example, Isaiah is told by God Go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make their heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That comes from Isaiah chapter 6. In other words, it's a devastating judgment. This judgment will be such that God will remove his blessing from the such that they will be so blind they won't be able to find their way out of this judgment on their own. So that's the bad news that Isaiah has to bring his generation. But it's not all bad news. After this judgment comes, the promise of good news and better times is also part of Isaiah's prophecy. The day is coming when God, he says, will anoint a chosen individual to set Israel free from that spiritual blindness and that captivity and oppression. And it'll be their oppressor's turn to experience the judgment of God. Those made poor under the hand of God's judgment will experience again the year of the Lord's favor and the blessings of God will flow again. And that's what we see if we actually go back to Isaiah and read his prophecy and go on a bit from the section that Jesus quotes. He begins, well, if, if we just quote the section that Jesus quotes, the spirit of the Lord, sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's this lifting of that period of judgment. And then Isaiah goes on to say, the day of the vengeance of our God will come to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's Isaiah 61. So who are those who mourn and grieve and despair? Well, it's those who've experienced for themselves the devastating consequences of falling under the judgment of God, of turning your back on him and and losing his blessing. And although many Israelites returned to the promised land after the exile to Babylon, there was this shared understanding that the good news of which Isaiah spoke had still lay ahead into the future. It hadn't fully arrived. And for hundreds of years, that poverty was still their experience, and the blindness and the captivity continued as Israel was ruled by one foreign ruler after the other. And so this yearning of the people of Israel to be truly free, as Isaiah prophesied, still burned bright in their hearts, much as that yearning to be free burns bright in many people's hearts today, whether it's the people of Hong Kong as they increasingly have experienced losing their freedoms, or the hearts of the persecuted church in the Middle East and the way that they're not free to worship Christ as they would long to do. And the hearts of peoples like the Karen and the Shan peoples in Myanmar, Christian peoples who are deeply persecuted uh, for their faith. You see, this, this freedom of which Isaiah spoke, ultimately it, it is a freedom from the long-lasting consequences of their rebellion and sin, from living under the judgment of God and not enjoying freedom and blessing that God promises one day. You see, today, um, today's prophets promise us freedom. Freedom to be whoever we want to be. That's the, the prophets of Disney, perhaps. To express ourselves without boundaries, to become our own kings and queens. But unless these prophets can open the eyes of the spiritually blind or set humanity free from what truly enslaves us, our sinful desires and the fear of God's judgment, then they cannot truly set us free. They cannot take those who are poor before God and make them rich in his sight. Only the anointed one, Isaiah foretold, can actually do that, can truly and deeply and finally set us free from the things that ultimately um, captivate us and enslave us, that fear of death and those sinful desires that put us out of relationship with God. So we need this anointing, anointed one, this Messiah of which Isaiah spoke. And that brings us to our second point this morning, Jesus' good news. Because if we look at verse 20, when Jesus rolls up the scroll, having just read from it, and gives it back to the attendants and sits down, with the eyes of everyone in the synagogue fastened on him, he begins his sermon by saying to them, and this is all we get of his sermon, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus' good news is that after hundreds of years of waiting, he is the promised anointed one come to set us free. And it's an astounding claim for which Luke spends the rest of his gospel showing us the evidence for. 
And there are two striking things about the good news Jesus has come to declare. In his reading of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, do you notice where Jesus stopped, where he stops very deliberately? He reads up to the words, the year of the Lord's favor, but he doesn't read the words that come next in Isaiah, and the day of vengeance of our God. Although that day of judgment forms part of his calling and is something he will do one day, now is the time, says Jesus, when through him we can experience not judgment, but God's favor and blessing. And which, of course, is great good news for the people of Nazareth that day, but also great news for us today as well. And the other striking thing about this good news that Jesus has come to declare is it is for everyone. And we see that in the examples that Jesus gives of Elijah being sent outside Israel to help a widow in Zarephath, and of Elisha, through whom the Syrian Naaman, who was the general of the army of Israel's great enemy at Syria, he is cleansed of his leprosy. What Jesus is saying, in other words, is that he takes Isaiah's good news for Israel and applies it for everyone. Jesus has come not just to save the people of Israel from the consequences of their sin, to lift God's judgment from them, but every nation on earth, every tribe, every family, every person, whatever language they speak. And so it's from the effects of the fall, from sin and disease and death and judgment that Jesus has come to set us all free. And that's why Jesus is still good news today, the very best of news. And as we suffer under this ongoing uh, disease, we remind ourselves of our, of our fragility as human beings of the, and of the need one day to be set free from this, these things, and only Jesus can do that. This is the task for which he was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so when in a few chapters' time, we'll probably get to this maybe next term, uh, when the followers of John the Baptist come to check whether Jesus is indeed this anointed one, they are sent back to John with these words. Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Here is Jesus' manifesto being worked out in Luke's gospel. He has come to make whole that which has been marred by sin. He's come to do something no one else can do and set us free from death. He's come to open our eyes to the truth about our standing before God and our need of forgiveness. He's come not for the healthy, but for the sick, for those who realize that they are poor, spiritually speaking, and need the riches of God's blessing to set them free. Well, that's the message that his followers were sent at the end of Luke's gospel out into the world to proclaim. Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus tells his disciples, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be preached in his name to all the nations. And that's the message that Jesus wants his followers to invest their energies in. So if we really did have 500 million pounds for the church, or I don't know, a million pounds for St. Mary's Cheshire, what would we invest that money in? What, what is the message that Jesus wants us to do? It, it is good news for all, good news for the poor who recognize their need of help and God's grace in their lives. 
And it's often the materially poor who, who experiences the worst of, I guess, what it is in our world to be under this sense of oppression and injustice, what it is to be under God's judgment because we have turned away from him. And we need this Christ to set us free. Gideon's, the Christian charity which gives out Bibles to hotels and schools all over the world, has just changed its name here in the UK. It's become good news for everyone. It's a great new name. And uh, reading their little latest uh, uh, letter from them uh, was this story I'd like to share with you. It's, called, it's by a man called Andy. I think his picture will come up on the screen here. Now, Andy was serving a life sentence for murder, the result of a drunken argument. And he says, my situation had become so hopeless that, in fact, I, I lost the will to live. I made a noose in my cell and was about to put it up and to end my life. But at that moment, a quiet voice spoke to me. Just read that Bible. On the shelf sat a little copy of a Gideon New Testament. And I opened the book and began at the beginning. I read right the way through Matthew's Gospel and then started on Luke's Gospel. Got to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the lost son. And, and he says, my tears began to flow. My hopelessness disappeared and the wretchedness I had suffered went. Most of all, the idea I firmly believe that I was unworthy of forgiveness because what I had done was taken from me. The angry, frightened, desperate person I had become ceased to exist there and then. I had hope. I wanted to live. And there wasn't any difficulty I was now able to face with God's help. What a wonderful example of Jesus setting someone free today and what we're reading he when, when we read a chapter like this in, in Luke's gospel it, it sometimes we just it comes into the realm in our minds of oh it's a good story or maybe it's it's good advice but no it's not either of those things it's good news it's life-changing good news and it's transforming lives every day all over the world so I hope you've tasted this good news for yourself and like Andy, who's now serving in a ministry supporting released prisoners, you're sharing this good news with others that you know. But of course, one of the glaring uh, points in this passage is that the people of Nazareth turned their backs on Jesus. They, they uh, turned their backs on this good news. Why did they do that? And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. Why do people reject this good news? Verse 29, have a look at it. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took Jesus to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And actually, there are some stages to this rejection. The congregation begins by speaking well of Jesus. The murmur goes round the synagogue. Well, he's not a boy anymore, having listened to him. There are, these are gracious words we're hearing from the lips of Jesus. But then they move quickly to doubts. Is this Joseph's, isn't this Joseph's son? How could the carpenter's boy be the anointed one of whom Isaiah spoke? How could this, perhaps we think, working class, first century Jewish man be the answer to the fundamental problems of human existence? Surely this was the height of arrogance. He hasn't even performed any miracles in their town or in our lives. Jesus, we perhaps think, is no different from the rest of us. 
So the doubts overtake their initial excitement. Jesus is aware of, of the mutterings that go around the room. Perhaps he hears them saying, huh, just Joseph's son. And he tells them that no prophet is welcomed in their hometown. He has no miracles for them. And like Elisha and Elijah, his calling is actually not to them, but is to go out and declare God's favor to the nations. They had expected Isaiah's anointed one to rain down the vengeance of God on their enemies. And they're furious that Jesus didn't, you know, they know what Jesus is doing in stopping and not reading that line from Isaiah. And so they drag him out of the synagogue to the top of that cliff, their hearts full of murderous intent. And you discover when the moment came, do you know, we cannot kill Jesus. In their initial excitement and subsequent doubts, moving to total rejection, the people of Nazareth turn against Jesus because they think they know better. Just like, I don't know, the Stephen Fry's or the Richard Dawkins of the day, we think we know better is still the reason why people reject Jesus today. In fact, as a country, it's as if over the past 100 years, we've moved through the same process. We've moved from the praise of Jesus to doubts to now growing rejection. But as the people of Nazareth discovered, you cannot simply kill Jesus off. Others tried to do that by crucifying him, and three days later he rose from the dead. And rejected at Nazareth, what does Jesus do? He simply moves on elsewhere, changing lives as he went. And we'll see more of that next week. But it's interesting, isn't it, that many in the West have turned against Christ, while other nations are turning to him. And that shows us, you know, that there are more Christians in China now than there are in Europe. And that shows us that while the reaction to Jesus in Nazareth went from praise to doubt to rejection, actually the opposite is also possible. That people can and do move from rejection through doubt, putting their praise and faith and trust in him. Wherever that good news is preached and lived out by those who've embraced it. So I hope that you have embraced that good news for yourself. And if you need help in doing that, and if you're still sort of in that doubt stage, then do have a word with that, Jeremy or, or Phil or myself. We'd love to help you through that stage so that this really does become the best news that you've ever heard. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could share this good news with someone this week? Why don't we pray for that? I find if, we, if I pray for opportunities to share the good news, the opportunities come. Well, let's uh, bow our heads to pray. Just to reflect on that good news this morning and what it means to our own hearts and what it might be. Who could we share it with this week as well? Let's pray. Have a moment's stillness. Just where are we going to take this message of God today? Heavenly Father, we thank you that as the time passes in our lives, we have this good news from you, this timeless good news. We thank you that Jesus is the anointed one who can open our eyes truly to the human condition. He is the one who can set us free from your judgment and from all that enslaves us in our lives. 
And he's the one who invites us to come and build his kingdom where true freedom and true riches are to be found. Oh, Heavenly Father, may this good news burn brightly in our hearts this day, in the week ahead, for the rest of our lives. Amen. Thank you, Edward. When um, Charles Wesley first heard the good news of Jesus Christ, it was such a momentous event for him that he marked it in his diary and uh, celebrated the anniversary of his coming to faith a year later by writing this next song that we'll be singing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. So perhaps as we sing it this morning, as we close our worship, we might be mindful of when we too first encountered that good news of Jesus and when it touched our hearts and when we came to faith. So please stand as the band leads us in our final song hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.